Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what's good, man? How we feeling? I'm good, Sam. Another day, another dollar, as they say. What's up with you, bro? Man, we're chilling, grinding, focused, locked and loaded. It's the the fourth quarter sprint, baby. This is where champions are born. Uh, (laughs) No stopping now, man. So really just trying to make these last couple weeks uh, of the year count. Um, But who we got lined up today? Today, we got Amber Horsbra. She's a, a freelance music strategist. Uh, she's former SVP of strategy at Downtown Records, which is when I came across her. Uh, she's worked with uh, artists like Miramasa, Smino, Tommy Genesis, Sophie Tucker, and more on branding and marketing campaigns. And she's also worked with brands like YouTube Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, Sonos, and more. So, you know, tell us what she talked about, Sam. Give a little, give yeah, I mean, people I- a little preview. that's right um i thought it was a great episode i think she's got a lot of experience when it comes to marketing and and promoting records and artists and i think she has a a very good job at distilling the uh, her her takeaways and strategies down into very tactical frameworks that you guys can deploy whether it's uh you're trying to build your own fan base and drive streams around your own project or you're managing an artist or your label uh but we do dive into all things marketing digital marketing allocating budgets, the keys behind great rollouts, all that good stuff. Um, one other thing I want to encourage you guys, Amber was kind enough to give us a, a discount code to her course. She has an online course that in essence is almost like a label playbook for artist managers and artist marketing. So it's, it's a blueprint, if you will, on how you can re- uh, roll out releases and scale your audience. So if you go to school.deepcuts.co and use the code MBP, um, you'll be able to actually get $55 off. So I think, uh, definitely want to encourage you guys to check that out if you want some even more tactics than what you hear in this episode. So there you have it without any further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Miss Amber Horsbra. Hey, what's up, Amber? How you doing? Hi, how's it going? I'm good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for virtually coming out. It's, uh, you know, it's, it sucks that Obviously, we can't see each other in person, but you're in Melbourne right now, so we wouldn't be able to record with you if if uh, if we wanted to. So very glad you could very glad you could make the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Cool. So I guess just for starters, um, I think there are a good amount of people who listen to our podcast that are not just in the music industry, but aspiring to actually break into it as well. Um, so I guess in like one to two minutes, uh, what do you think is one of your one of the big breaks that you kind of got in the beginning of your career as to how you broke into the music industry and kind of started the, uh, the journey that you're on right now? For sure. The first real job that I had that wasn't kind of internships at labels or magazines was at a company called One Love in Melbourne, in Australia. And it was a touring company that was since bought by SFX, but they did kind of huge EDM festivals in Australia. So like um, Stereosonic and Creamfields being the main ones. But And then all throughout the year they would tour DJs, so Vici, Armin Van Buren, Skrillex, Calvin Harris, that kind of stuff. And I used to do the marketing and, and digital marketing for them. And it was right when social media kind of just started. So I 
did all of that for for them. But it was honestly like the it is the best job working in touring when you're like 20 years old because of 20, 21 years old because it's you know not only are you going to all these festivals and concerts and that you would be going to anyway but you're also sent on all of these places especially for in nightlife because you know you're 20 years old and all the directors have kids and families they're like we don't want to go to a 2am set at the club (laughs) and I'm like I do send me (laughs) um so it was yeah it was honestly it was the best and after I did that I then moved to New York straight after that and then started working for MTV but I would say touring is a great place to start not only because it's really fun but you also you are wearing I mean in every job in the music industry you wear so many hats but in touring Mm -hmm. I feel like you especially do that and you do it in such a uh, like precise timeline and you know everything has to work and go according to plan otherwise it can be disastrous and so I think you learn that pressure and that speed of working quite quickly and you get to do it in a really fun environment. Yeah, when I was a when I was a manager, people used to say the only thing that could sharpen your teeth more than that was working in the touring industry. So whether you were a tour manager or a booking agent, because it's intense. It's really intense. <laughs> like the pressure, yeah. the pressure's yeah. there. Um, but I know a lot of yeah, people, absolutely. I know a lot of really successful managers who started in the touring industry and were able to kind of have that fire under them originally. And because of that, management seemed like a little bit easier almost. <laughs> it was like, okay, the house isn't burning down yeah. all the time, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So um, what does your day-to-day look like now? What are you, what are you doing now? You're obviously a, a music strategist, but what does that look like in practice? I, I, you know, I think we have a good amount of people on here that, you know, work for larger companies or maybe own their own companies. But um, in terms of your story, I think it's really interesting that you are a, a music consultant. I, I know it's a route that I almost took earlier in the year before the pandemic started. So how does that manifest itself? What does that look like? And, and also, how does that extend to your career, I, I think, as an educator as well? Well, I would say that I would say there was like a day-to-day pre-pandemic and then there's a day-to-day during the pandemic and COVID has completely (laughs) flipped my life upside down. So (laughs) pre-pandemic, what a strategist would do in the music business and I was working like record side. So it it was basically strategist comes in and looks at each artist as if it were a brand and try to come up with figure out what is point a what is point b and what are the steps that we need to get there and how do we work with marketing to do that and as a consultant what i would do is i would actually working a lot more on the management side and with artists directly who Mm -hmm. wanted to take back more of control of the planning of their record campaigns and so i would help advise them on release plans and strategies and look for opportunities and come up with creative ideas that could set them apart. So pre-COVID, it was very much, you know, meeting with artists, working with them, brainstorm sessions, workshop sessions, um, making sure that you're looking at what's going on in culture and within tech to see what kind of opportunities artists could jump on quickly and um, also coaching them too. So figuring out like especially 
uh, you know, especially in 2019 when TikTok, everyone was like jumping on TikTok. A lot of, some of my work would be kind of presenting the opportunity for that particular channel and then coming up with content strategies and then coaching the artists on the best way to use the platform and engage in order to grow an audience. That was pre-pandemic. Then <laughs> the pandemic hit and all of a sudden uh, I had to move back to, to Melbourne, which is where I'm from for a host of reasons. Mm-hmm. And it, I also had a meltdown the first month of COVID and I felt very, um, felt uh, kind of inappropriate going and pitching artists for work when everyone <laughs> else was struggling so much, especially yeah. when, you know, I was working on a few campaigns that those records won't ever come out now because mm. it was the music was from a time that feels so different now. And right. so uh, what I ended up doing was I was has had since been running a newsletter called Deep Cuts, which is all about music strategy and providing tools and resources for uh, really the practitioners, the people on the ground who are doing the the record campaigns, like the digital marketers, publicists, content marketers, um, project managers, managers uh, to like build release plans basically. And so I started looking at that and I was like, okay, what can I do? So then I ended up spending the next like seven months um, building a course, which is for managers and self-managed artists and teaching them how to build release plans, taking, you know, a lot of the strategies and tactics that labels employ and figuring out how to make that um, uh, like scalable and executable and repeatable for the resources that you have. And so my day-to-day now looks like running that, running that school, uh, coaching, so working one-on-one with artists, um, and that is kind of a service which almost helps, it kind of helps artists itemise their creativity. So you would know this from management. When you work with mm-hmm. artists, they have infinity ideas. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you, and But they sometimes want that like, uh, just a little bit of guidance on where to focus their energies, like what what avenues have the greatest revenue opportunity or the greatest audience building opportunity or the greatest opportunity to reach whatever goals that they might have. Um, uh, but when you're working with very creative people, they can be split between lots of different things. So I right. help coach artists on, you know, where to focus and then how to build systems and processes that allow them to focus on those things. Um, and then from an education stance, it's research and my own education, making sure that I'm always um, focusing on that, but then also mm-hmm. building templates and systems and, you know, things that people can use, whether or not, like some of them have been, you know, really tactical things like um, a, a toolbox of every single paid and free tool that music marketers will need across like analytics mm-hmm. and digital and content and press uh, to things that are like a list of questions and a, and a process for running an artist workshop where, you know, a goal setting workshop. And yeah, so I'd say, yeah, split between running the course, coaching artists one-on-one and then um, making resources and building out templates for music business. I'm sure for the uh, research part, you've at least had to do a lot of research this year, just as things are shifting so much in the music industry. It's like the last five years of news all condensed into, into one year because every day something is changing. I feel like this year. 
Uh, it was actually really cool to watch it and to stay abreast of it, I feel like, because right. I think there's a lot of technologies that have existed for eight, like for, for, for years and years and quite a few companies that have come and gone who have built their businesses off those technologies, but the use case and the user behaviour wasn't there yet. But what COVID has done is kind of provided these platforms and and tech a use case so like live streaming is a perfect example of that where we were live streaming concerts years and years and years ago but it was a very expensive undertaking and not a lot of people watched them because they either went to the concert or it wasn't as much of a focus or it just wasn't as great as an experience whereas now when we don't have any concerts it's we've people want that and they and they are going towards live streaming and then you have all of these artists and companies who are creating more you know interesting ways to use the technology that isn't just broadcasting a live show mm-hmm. so it's yeah i think it's for me you know in terms of a year it's been you know I think really interesting and now that I'm on the other side of my meltdown, um, I think like a lot of- <laughs> I had one too. It's, it's all good. I, I definitely <laughs> had one as well. You were not alone in that. <laughs> okay, great, great. Um, I think it was, I think it's actually kind of pretty exciting right now because I think this time has forced people to think about you know, what do their teams look like? What are they spending money on? What are they, where are their resources going? What is the fan and artist relationship and how can that be strengthened and bolstered through systems that either weren't used to their full capacity or uh, in different ways? And it's, yeah, I think it's, I think a lot of good things will come after this or during or whatever, however, if there is even an after, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. It'll come, it'll come. <laughs> um, with that said, I mean, you mentioned a couple of different things there that I would love to dive deeper and unpack. Um, and we'll just kind of start with great rollouts. I know you mentioned a lot of the time you think about uh, when you're putting together resources and advising different artists and in your experience working with different artists. Um the one big question is how do you create a great rollout that helps an artist really engage and activate all of their fans, but obviously try and grow that fan base. So from your perspective, what do you feel are some of the, the core factors of a really successful rollout? I think having a story in the way that almost like a film is told, but over the course of a year. So crucial to that is having enough budget for content and not just going for like one big hit of an amazing music video, but actually thinking about what, you know, what would a fan or a listener or somebody that doesn't know you, but will know you eventually, what's the the story that they're going to be told about the, the project and the artist? And then what content can you create to ensure that that story is told in a compelling way with twists and turns over um, you know, the course of a year or however long the rollout goes for. So say, um, yeah, content, then a way for that content to be seen. So digital marketing is, um, you know, tried and true and and, often, and and quite cost effective in a way to do that. And uh, then collaborations as well and figuring out like which artists can you work strategically with or, you know, photographers and directors and, creative collaborators that would fit within, you know, within the world uh, that you are creating. But I think 
successful rollouts now are longer and they're not front loaded like they were before um before streaming so it's like it's very much like what's the story that we're going to tell how do we how can we tell it for a year and continue to drive people back to the music rather than how do we create all this hype and anticipation over months and months and months that lead up to a really intense like street week um that will then dictate what happens with the marketing for the rest of the time so it's just i think a shift of the resources and yeah a a shift of the allocation of resources to more like post-release yeah no, for sure. I think that's super valuable. I like that perspective a lot. I think when we're thinking about rollouts too, we tend to break it into like three phases, tease, launch, and amplify. And I think it's very similar to what you're already alluding to, but trying to make sure that you're elongating that story to build some anticipation leading into it and then leaving yourself with a lot of ammunition to continue to kind of like fan the flames, if you will, over time. So there's able to, it's able to snowball on itself. I think there's a lot of really amazing instances of songs that keep building and keep building. I think Jordan, even with like crew and gold link, like that song went what like double, triple platinum. And it didn't even really start to pop off until months after it was initially released. Right. Yeah, no, I, you know, the people that have listened to the podcast have heard this story a few times, but you know, it gets great. It gets better every time, but um, (laughs) yeah, uh, the song came out. And then it got popular the next summer. And I think it came out that December or around Thanksgiving, like before the summer. And they got to the point where he would go like double platinum, triple platinum. And we weren't really even like putting a ton into the record. It just like kept growing and growing and growing, um, which is obviously a great feeling to to be able to put out a record that just grew organically like that. Um, and I think like like you guys are saying, the tail on a record is a lot more important than beforehand. I, I mean, I have an, an artist that I'm speaking to right now um, he's a friend and, uh, or actually he's sort of doing the marketing for one of his friends. And he kind of asked me like, how do I prepare for this release? And we haven't gone into depth about what he should do yet. Um, but that was one of the first things I said, it was like, don't just prepare for the release. Also prepare like pretty heavily for, for post-release, you know? So. Yeah, there was uh, so many examples of when you're working on a record campaign and, you have a whole A&R team or, um, you know, a, a select group of people that choose the, all the singles and it's based on just kind of chatting to people that are in that, like, immediate core. And then when the record comes out, because, like, because of social media and because of streaming, it's very easy to start to see, like, what is going to start to pop off and you can really shoot yourself in the foot if you don't have enough budget after the fact to be able to to be able to switch so for example uh, a few years ago I worked on a uh, an album um, for electric guest and they were they were really we had chosen the singles all that kind of stuff but then once the album came out there was a song uh, called oh devil that just started naturally bubbling and I just got more and more popular over the summer started getting added to playlists so then we're like okay we've got to jump on this so then we jumped on it with we um, they rechecked like redid the chorus with a different feature on it. Then that created more momentum, and then that song ended up being the top stream um, single on the album. But it wasn't any that wasn't the plan at all going into the release. But it was fortunately we had planned it in such a way that you have that uh, the budget and the resources for that amplification stage that Sam was talking about, where you can jump on stuff, be reactionary. And um and find that opportunity and then help build and grow and develop the campaign in that way. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting that you're, you're bringing up budget. We haven't gotten too deep into the podcast in terms of actually how to allocate a budget. Um, so this is going to be a big part of the episode because I was excited to talk about this. But what are, what are um, I guess like when an artist is first starting out, let's let's imagine we have like a, a, a fresh a fresh artist um, and they're beginning to gain enough traction to start reinvesting. Um, what do you think are the first few things that make sense for this artist to to reinvest in um, when they're at the point where they can start allocating funds to to certain aspects of their career and to their art? Yeah. Before I would even talk about Alec, like uh, which tactics, I would the way I think about budgets is that kind of 70-20-10 rule, which is mm. 70% of your budget goes back into what works and what no and what you know mm. works for you. Then 20% of it is that a hypothesis. So it might be a tactic or a tool or a platform that you see a lot of, you know, that your friends are using or that uh, people are, you know, other artists are using. And so you you think, oh, yeah, well, that could kind of work. And so you allocate into that. And then 10% on just like spaghetti at the wall. Like just you have no idea. You want to just test things. And what that ends up doing is if you find something, if you spend 10% of your budget on something that you have no idea if it's going to work and it works, then you can put it into that 20% and then it can go into that 70%. And it, what that it does is it allows you to just constantly be experimenting and with, mm. which means that your marketing is not going to become stale, but it also gives you the permission to be able to spend, you know, wildly in a way that's still uh, responsible because I think a lot what happens with artists, especially if they're managing their own budget, is they have really good instincts and intuition on where to spend originally and and where they got to in their in their career. But then when they're like, oh, I could spend $20,000, that <laughs> that's like, oh, it gives you a bit of, um, you, you get a bit of a fright and you're like, oh, I don't want to spend any of it because I don't know where to yeah. spend. And so, but if you give yourself that rule of, all right, 70% goes into what works, 20% on hypotheses and then 10% on whatever, then um, it's an easy way to cut it down. In terms of the actual channels or platforms or um, tactics that I would spend on, in that 70% for sure content, so as we are talking about before, building a compelling story that gives a new listener a reason to follow or adore you or talk about you over the course of a year, you need multiple hits, content hits for that. So because the platforms that people discover music on are all driven by frequency and consistency of content. So playing into that, you you need a, a sizable budget for content and to sustain interest. And then also digital marketing. I think digital marketing is, uh, I mean, and when I talk about that, I mean like social ads, uh, social ads and also building the systems in place to capture any interest. So, you know, if you have, if you don't have your digital marketing and like your whole home set up in that way, when you get a new listener or you get a new stream and there's nowhere for that person to go, then they can, they can forget about you. Whereas if you have right. a system where it's pushing people to a follow and as platform that you've identified as a strategic priority or an email list or text message where you're going to own that data. Um, that means that you just constantly, you're going to be capturing any interest that comes in. And then also social ads because they're so cheap and uh, it's kind of um, not easy to do, but they're so, uh, what's the word, reliable and um, measurable. 
And then the third part of that 70%, I would say, is creative. So the primary discovery platforms, music, are all visual. It's like Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Triller. It's all visual. And so you need to be able to, you need a a visual look that is going to stand out. So I would make sure that those three things are uh, where you spend the bulk of your money. Pre-COVID, I would have said tour support, but, um, you know, now not so much. Uh, Hopefully that'll change. But yeah, so I would say those three things, creative digital marketing and content. And then I'd spend 20% on your kind of uh, your hypotheses, so collaborations. I think that this is, um, you know, this is the one like with collaborations, it's kind of the quickest way to build a streaming audience and also uh, a way to really, uh, yeah, it's a really simple way to build audience. It's challenging to do, especially if you are your own island, but I think there's so many tools that make it so much easier for artists to collaborate on music now that that's um, very achievable. And then the 10% throw it against the wall at see what sticks. I would do probably influencer marketing and I'd do TikTok at the moment just because that's kind of the most hype channel. Um, but that would also depend if the artist actually used TikTok or not because if they didn't use it, then I would probably recommend Instagram or YouTube, but some kind of influencer marketing. And the reason why I wouldn't spend much on that is because it's not measurable. And I think a lot of people talk about it, like you need influencers, you need influencers, but you can also spend so much money on influencer marketing and it get absolutely nowhere. Like you can do the dance video, choreography video, and it does absolutely nothing. Um, so that's how I would do it. Uh, cool. A couple of things. First of all, that was a very tactical answer, and we appreciate very tactical answers on the Music <laughs> Business Podcast, so I just want to say thank you for that. Second of all, I think it's uh, – we're going to talk about COVID and the effects on marketing and on budgeting a little bit later um, as well, but I do think it's appropriate, and if there's ever a situation where we ask you a question and it's different pre-COVID than it is now, I think that's especially um, – relevant to our audience, uh, our patrons, um, the people that I've spoken with, uh, we do get a lot of questions about, okay, what, how has the, how has the, uh, the landscape kind of changed, uh, since COVID started? Um, and, uh, I guess that being said, um, Sam, if you want to stay on marketing weekend for a little bit as well, I know you may have a question. Um, I can, I can wait for the, the big COVID questions, the big hairy questions a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I would chime in. One question, and just just going back to another thing you mentioned, is this like fan to artist relationship? And I think this has definitely been something that's been fascinating to me because I do think that all these different digital marketing tactics that you just spoke through um, are super valuable. And at the end of the day, it's uh, never going to truly outpace word of mouth marketing. And to the extent that you can create a really deep connection between an artist and their fans. It just increases the likelihood that those fans become actual ambassadors and and really create this domino effect. So, from your perspective, I mean, when you, I mean, I know you just kind of glossed over that when mentioning the fan to artist relationship, but can you dive into a couple more tactical ways or, um, yeah, different tactics, tools um, that you've seen artists effectively deploy in order to build a deeper connection with those fans? Yeah. One, which would be, one is kind of standing for a cause and not doing it in a way which is um, 
like seedy, like I want to build a fan base, therefore I'm going to adopt this charity kind of thing, but something that the artist truly believes in. So, for example, I was working with Elohim, who's an electronic producer and artist, and she is a huge mental health advocate. She herself suffers from pretty crippling panic attack disorder and she has kind of, so she speaks out a lot about mental health, but mm-hmm. that has become a, a point of, and, and she, she does, doesn't do it in a way to build her fan base, but it has this fan effect on it because when she goes to put out music, she does it in a way that supports mental health advocacy. So, for example, instead of doing visualisers for a, a, an album, she did a series of breathwork videos where a breathwork coach worked with the EP that she was putting out and created a whole sequence based on different um, breath work that you might need at particular times and that becomes a tool for people to use, you know, to calm themselves down. And mm-hmm. um, I think that strength that you see in her fan base, people, you know, people like really adore her and really need, like need her and need her voice and, um yeah, and so I'd say kind of that standing for something and then also investing in your fan base and, and giving them those um, that access to you and also those tools. Um, then there's the more kind of like, uh, like I think the fan relationship is all about access. So another example which is, uh, is like all the live streams that we've seen and and you see these artists in ways that you've never seen them before. So you know, for example, like Sophie Tucker goes live with the dance party at lunchtime every day and they've been doing that for like 200-plus days now. I love and that. that. I've seen that like several times. That's like yeah. one of my favorite things. It's awesome. It's, it's great. And that strengthens the fan base because it brings people together all the time and gives them access to her to them, sorry. And, uh, you know, in, in that same vein, like Miley Cyrus's talk show kind of thing, like I think anything – the fan to artist relationship is is mostly, I believe, is about access, and that could be challenging because, you know, some artists, aren't, you know, really aren't up for that, and and not in a way that they don't want fans or don't like their fan base, but just don't feel, you know, don't, don't know a way to do it that isn't so vulnerable. Um, so yeah, I would think that the actual tactics that go into the marketing around fan artist relationships is you know, how do you give people access and how do you reward those people and whether or not that's like a live stream or, um, you know, tools or even just like, you know, text marketing or being very active on social media. It's just like how do you break down that, you know, distance between the end listener and the end fan and the artist? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually have a question that kind of precedes getting to this point, which is figuring out who you want to connect with in the first place. Also, um, we actually were speaking with a few of our patrons over the weekend about um, figuring out what your target audience is and and what it looks like. Um, And obviously Mm -hmm. I gave some advice, Sam gave some advice, but it'd be great to kind of pick your brain on what artists should be asking themselves in order to figure out the the most likely people to connect with their art um, and through their music, I think would be great. Sure. Um, okay, so the first one, which I think is a bit of a cop-out and I hate it when people say this, so I'll elaborate on it, but goals, <laughs> like what are your goals? <laughs> uh-huh. It's so annoying. I feel like that's, you know, every podcast I listen to, you feel like you're going to get advice. <laughs> I'm like, well, it just depends on your goals. You're like, ah! <laughs> but 
to elaborate. <laughs> um, when you think about your goals, like I, I think figuring out one around revenue, like where does the revenue come from and what do you like doing in order to get that revenue? And then that starts to trickle down who your target audience should be. So, for example, I'm working with an artist at the moment who is in a band, pretty well-known band, also DJs, but is a composer as well. And they want to get, they want to build up their composing work, specifically in like film and television. So their target market, but their calling is to be an artist. So they will always be in bands and and um, do, you know, solo stuff. So their target market actually isn't building up like this huge audience around their solo stuff. It's building up mm-hmm. a, an audience of of music supervisors in order to get that film and composing mm-hmm. work. On mm-hmm. the other end, I'm working with another artist who's in a quite a well-known international band, but is also coming out with um, you know something that's more of like a a solo project that's going to be very. Uh, that they want to do just for fun. So for them, the target audience, and they don't want to travel. So the target audience for them is very local, like very, very local within their city and within their community. So I think, and then, you know, other artists I've worked with, because uh, I'm Australian and I was living in the US, a lot of my clients would be Australian artists that were trying to crack the US or wanted to continue to build their, their audience. And so their target audience would be US focused and finding a place to you know, convey the same, um, to figure out how a campaign would work in Australia and then move it to the US. So, yeah, it is it is so crucial to figure out, like, what your actual goals are and then you can figure out, like, who the target audience is from there. If you need a way to figure out goals, I think one question is that's always really helpful that I always ask artists and find it quite illuminating is who's your dream support slot? So who would they love mm. to be supporting? Um and I think from there you can kind of gleam a lot of insight around, you know, what world and scene do they want to exist in and what does their career trajectory want to be? Because no, there's no no artist that wants that goes like, I want to be that artist. Like everyone's got their own, you know, original, um, you know, original idea. But thinking about who they would tour with, you can start to place like, you can start to retrofit or like work back into an audience from there. It's like, okay. That's the kind of scene, that's the kind of world, that's the kind of artist. Who follows that, Those that person? How did they get there? Who were the, like, beginnings of the, where did the beginnings of the fan base exist for that artist and could that be applied at all to this? And then also looking at which artist, taking that exact artist of who's your dream support slot uh, and then figuring out who else is around that. So, like, who are the similar artists on Spotify, um, you know, uh, and then there's another one, which is who doesn't listen to your music but absolutely should, and that can uncover kind of strengths and weaknesses a little bit of like where do you think that a question like that says to the artist, okay, I exist in this point A, but I really want to be in point B because those people listen to, you know, artists in point B, so then how do we get there? And then that can kind of dictate who the uh, – the, target audience would be so yeah yeah no no that's cool you can you can um you can do you can keep talking sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you oh no i was just gonna summarize because i was waffling but yeah so goals (laughs) um who's your dream support slot and who doesn't listen to my music but absolutely should 
Is there ever a situation that you've been in where the where the, what the, who the artist wants to connect to or who their target audience is is just different from what you think it is? <laughs> and in and in what situation should an artist um like how how is an artist honest with themselves? Like I've I've kind of been in this situation before or, or we've talked to people in this situation where um, you know, an artist will totally miscategorize their genre, for example. Like that's pretty big. So, so they want to, they, and, and then that, that results in like pitching to the wrong playlists or pitching to the wrong curators, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I guess how can an artist also oh, kind of avoid that pitfall in the first place um, and kind of stick with, stick with places that are also like true to them and not necessarily where they, cause, cause I, you know, I definitely hear the who's not listening to your music who should be. Um, and that kind of triggered that in my head, mm. like, um, that I've interacted with, with artists who kind of take that to the extreme. So how do you, how would you think it's, it's mm. kind of like smart to avoid that pitfall, I guess? Yeah, uh, that's actually good that you put me up on that because I've definitely worked with artists where that has been the case and it's specifically around critical acclaim where a lot of artists will be like, I should mm-hmm. be in Pitchfork and you're like, I don't think they're going to write about you. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> I think that the, um, I, unfortunately, I don't know, from my perspective, like on label marketing, I don't, almost, I don't know that I have been in my role, have been that effective in being able to do that. The only way that I can do that is by providing Mm -hmm. information around what the different markets and audiences look like and what that path looks like and who else is in that world and, um, and help them kind of come to that decision themselves and just arm them with all the information of just like, okay, well, this is what, this is what that market looks like and this is the type of marketing that happens there these are the artists that are most influential there this is the consumer general consumer profile that exists within that and and help them like I I I worked on a campaign like this and where we spent a lot of time trying to do that where um my role was basically mapping out and having everybody in the room mapping out what the different pathways actually look like and helping them kind of see mm-hmm. the opportunity and see the pitfalls. and But I think the way that an artist can stay true to that is probably by having trusted, like a trusted voice around them that, right. uh, which I guess comes from management, um, that isn't so much a yes person or someone that they respect right. their, their input and opinion. Um, but I just, I, me, myself, don't feel like, as, as a label marker or a strategist, I'm that person to an artist, but I can definitely mm-hmm. arm the people who are that person to an artist with the information. Um, because at the end of the day, everybody wants success, mostly, I, I think. Um, and so if you can <laughs> kind of show uh, what the path to success looks like and the quickest path, then that and then they can kind of make that decision themselves. Right, right. That's awesome. I like that a lot. Um so I, I think as we near the end, I think I have a nice question from one of our patrons, David Lee. And for, for all our listeners out here, definitely check out David Lee on Spotify. He's got some heaters, D-A-V-I-D-L-Y. <laughs> but uh, with that said, he, he proposed a really good question, which I think definitely helps bring a lot of things full circle here, which is how has the pandemic changed how you approach marketing campaigns? 
and what should artists keep in mind moving forward? So I'd really just love to kind of come full circle there. What do you think, Amber? Uh, I mean, I think it has changed everything and it has really highlighted holes in the industry, especially around the over-reliance on touring as the main revenue source. And as we were talking about before, I think that tightening of the fan-artist relationship is something that uh, we should be focusing on. I think that artists have been, because of the pandemic, are focusing on that a lot more and they're wanting that connection, whether or not it's just, you know, on a personal level of feeling isolated and wanting that connection with fans or realising that, you'd, like, realising that the fan base is even more critical to their success. So, like, you know, in March, I think March or April, there was 30,000 new Patreon signups as soon as the as soon as COVID hit, which was the largest month in their history, and they've continued to grow. So I think we've seen so many more people, uh, so many more artists and their teams really like dial down on um, strengthening that relationship. I think where artists focus should focus tactically is what the, is anything that is around. Like the internet is basically the primary connection point right now. So. Any, you know, things to make use of that and make use of those technologies that are available. So um, content, I feel like I said content so much today, sorry. Um, uh, no, it, it is about content. And that's what Sam says all the time too. That's like his, that's like his main word of choice. So all good there. So <laughs> our annoying. Audience, our audience I can hear myself. <laughs> yeah, our audience is definitely accustomed to hearing content a lot. Okay. It's all about Fine. the content. <laughs> yeah. If you say so, Jordan, I'm happy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. The internet being that primary connection point. So making use of the technology available as we're talking about, like the live streaming, if, if that's available to you um, coming up. And I think different artists have really developed what the content looks like. So like Miley Cyrus with her talk show or, um, you know, Laura Marling at the beginning was offering guitar lessons um, and we're seeing these artists in these different ways, I think. So really thinking about, okay, well, if social media is the platforms, what are the tools within each of those platforms and how can I create content that strengthens that artist-fan relationship? Um, also ways that make use of different of, of revenue, I think, which impacts the delivery of content. So you're seeing companies like scramble to figure this out, which is like if we're over relying on touring, how do you then monetize live streams or you monetize right. fan bases or memberships? And there are lots of services that are popping up who are trying to solve that um, or artists doing it themselves, like when Erica Badu, who was widely cited when she created basically her own live streaming company to be able to monetize her streams. Um, so, yeah, content. Uh, digital marketing because not only because it's reliable but it's also I found just anecdotally and I don't know if this is backed by data but I found ads in this time to be cheaper than they have in previous times mm -hmm. just because I think the competition is far lower um, mm -hmm. and also mapping out the revenue so and where that comes from and then dialing down on what that is so for some clients of mine, I have advised that they keep releasing music, but for others who, for others, it makes sense to completely push their releases back. So I think where artists should focus tactically is like figure out where does that revenue come from 
what does the fan relationship look like? How do I tighten that fan relationship? And I can do that through content, digital marketing, the internet and access. Right. Right. Awesome. Yeah. It makes it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, we had somebody on here, Hovane um, Hilton and Chris Hershey from um, from Cinematic Music Group. And they were kind of just saying that, you know, there's also like no rules it's like the wild, wild west. And as scary as that mm. can be, it also provides a, a great opportunity for people to find unique ways to kind of, like you're saying, I'm, I'm like bringing, I'm like bringing the music business podcast guests knowledge all together at one right now. <laughs> yeah. but they're saying essentially uh, use, use the flexibility of the industry right now to do what you're saying, which is make that relationship closer with, with you and your fans. Um, and we're seeing more and more unique ways every single day. So uh, people are listening to podcasts more. So that's exciting too. Um, awesome. Well, thank yeah, you, Amber, you so write the much book. for put put all. What'd you say? Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was going to say you should write the book. You should write the book. Put all the music oh, yeah. podcast guests <laughs> inside of right. COVID together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll put it together on an IGTV. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Cool. That'd be a good one too. Well, want to thank you for coming out again. Um, Super excited to to get this one out. Everybody, check out Deep Cuts. Check out uh, Amber School, and we will we'll, we'll catch up with you. We'll catch up with you hopefully soon. And and uh, you know, be safe out there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam and Jordan. Man, well, there you have it. Another week, another podcast. Thank you, Amber, very much for coming on. Like we mentioned in the beginning of the show, if you haven't already, definitely go check out her course. Uh, just go to school.deepcuts.co if you're interested. Um, in the School of Deep Cuts, you can just down, you can get access to her course for $55 off using the discount code MBP. Um, really want to thank her for coming out. I think she did a great job at dissecting some various marketing tactics that can be really valuable for you guys. What do you think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of my favorite parts about our podcast is that people can, and we talked about this with Amber after the episode, but that people can literally take notes throughout the episode. So especially when we get into budgeting and she goes down and splitting up percentages and testing the 10% and throwing it up against the wall and reallocating budget based on that. I think people will have a pretty good idea what they need to do and what, what their options are for, for budgeting, for marketing, for connecting with your fans, um, all from this episode. And they'll be able to take away really insightful uh, tactical advice to to maybe you know even market or, or or better brand their next song their next album their next release so um i'm super glad that we got her on for sure and i'm and i'm you know we've said this before but we love students of the game and she's clearly somebody who studies studies the music industry as well as works in it and and you know that's very apparent in this episode Well, as always, we appreciate you guys, and we'll be back next week. One love. We out.